Uh, if you open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. I just found myself in Matthew a lot lately, uh, meditating on this text as well. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. And instead of reading the text at one time, I'm going to walk us through it again, verse by verse. And then we'll move on to some uh, different subjects and applications of this text. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. says, Now when the disciples came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking them, that is Christ, was asking his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Well, the Gospel of Matthew unfolds to us what kind of man Jesus is. The Gospels are interested in the person and work of Christ. And the way that Christ unveiled himself was through his words and through his works. It was as he preached with his authority that he, he awed the crowds with his wisdom and his power. And it was his impossible deeds of healing people, healing the sick, raising the dead, that people's eyes were looked and gazing upon him, asking, what kind of man is this? And it's with this that Christ comes to his disciples, alone with them, by Mount Hermon, and he says, who do the people say that I am? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And the disciples tell Jesus that the, that the crowd, the multitudes, they have a slew of ideas about who Christ, about who Jesus, I should say, about who Jesus is. Some say Elijah. Elijah was to be the forerunner of Christ. First they said, some say John the Baptist. Again, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was, if you will, the Elijah, but the people didn't see that. And so John the Baptist at this time had actually been beheaded by Herod, and the people were wondering, perhaps John the Baptist was raised from the dead, and now he's back and he's preaching again to us. Or maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's Jeremiah the prophet. The Apocrypha tells the story that before the prophet Jeremiah died, he supposedly hid the Ark of the Covenant in a secret cave. And people began with these traditional stories that before the Anointed One, before the Christ would come, Jeremiah would come back and he would uncover the Ark and he would bring it back to the temple. So the people wonder, maybe this, maybe this Christ, maybe he, is, maybe he is only Jeremiah. Or finally they say, maybe he's just one of the prophets. And this really, if you will, is just one of the lowliest remarks of all. Not that it's slanderous in any way, but really all they're saying is, maybe he is just one of the prophets who is pointing us to the Christ that is to come. In other words, the people did not believe that Jesus Christ was who he was. He's just a prophet. He's just some other man. He's just a forerunner to the Messiah. But in actuality, our Lord was not really concerned with what the people were saying about Him. Look at verse 15. But He said to them, Who do you say that I am? That is what is most important to me. Not about what others think, but about what you think. And so I turn the sights upon you this morning. The most important question you will ever be asked is who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? There is no more important life question. No answer will define your destiny more than your answer to this question. And no one else can answer this question for you. 
Every man and woman must answer this question on his own. Well, Simon Peter decides to speak up on behalf of the disciples. He answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, verse 16. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Anointed One, the Son of the living God. Peter's words here are the very foundation of the Gospel, the very foundation of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This confession contains the entire purpose of the Gospels. This is the center of all Christology, that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, He is the Son of Man, but He has not always been the Son of Man. Before He was the Son of Man, He was eternally the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling all of creation with His Father in perfect glory, in perfect splendor, And so what's happening here is that week after week, Christ calls Himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, emphasizing over and over and over His humanity, emphasizing over and over and over His humility, emphasizing over and over that He is God, yes, by His power and by His actions, but in His sovereign choice, He became dust. He became like a man. You see, why Christ calls Himself the Son of Man is because if he would have appeared on the scene and just said, I am the Messiah, I am the Anointed One, he would have been immediately stoned. But Christ in his wisdom begins to unfold himself, not just by his works, or not just by his words, I should say, but by his works. He forces the people to come to grips slowly and slowly that he is more than just a mere man. That his power and his preaching point that he is something else. But what's happening here is that though he's doing these things, the people don't get it. The people aren't grasping who Christ is. But Peter does. Peter's confession is, is pretty incredible. In the Greek, the definite article appears four times. Peter's does not say, you are a Christ. He does not say, you are a anointed one. He says, you are the Christ You are the Anointed One. You are the Eternal King of Psalm 2, verse 6, which says, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. And not only does Peter call Him the Christ, but he calls Him the Son, definite article. You are the Son. Not a Son among sons, but the one and the only Son of Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. And so Peter, staring directly in the face of Jesus Christ, says, you are not just the Son of Man, but you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And to this Jesus responds in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here Christ gives no commendation for Peter's correct theology. Instead, Christ pronounces to Peter how infinitely lucky he is. He does not say, good job Peter, I knew you had the answer. 
He says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Simon Barjona, which means Simon, son of John, you are just mere flesh. And what you have just announced cannot be revealed by mere flesh. What you announced must be revealed to you from heaven, from none other than my Father. See, Jesus is not pat Peter on the back. In fact, if you look at his words closely, he really just humbles Peter. Peter, your answer is correct, but you had nothing to do with it. It had nothing to do with your intellect. had nothing to do with your wisdom. It was completely and solely by the sovereign grace of God that you have answered correctly. Now we know that Peter had nothing to do with it. But let us remember that we had nothing to do with it either. No man comes to Jesus except by the sovereign grace of God. It is all of God's grace that you are not here this morning saying, Jesus was a very good man and He was a good rabbi. Jesus was a man who who went about doing good and and helping other people. Or Jesus was a a religious guru who went around doing good to others. Or Jesus was, was Elijah. Or Jesus was the Jeremiah. Or Jesus was a prophet. Or that Jesus is a load of bunk and He never even existed. Or that Jesus was a false teacher. He was a false prophet. He was leading Israel astray. That's what you deserve to be saying. That's what I deserve to believe. All of us deserve to be those who are saying, Jesus Christ is a liar. Jesus Christ is a false prophet. We deserve to be those who are being led astray by false teaching and false doctrine. We deserve to be those who are deluded by darkness. We deserve to be wandering around in a drunken stupor, hung over on the things of the world. We deserve to be those who are cursing Christ and mocking God. That is what we deserve. Flesh and blood did not reveal to you, flesh and blood did not reveal to me who Jesus Christ is. Only by the sovereign grace of God Are you and I able to answer this morning? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nothing caused you to see this truth except the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, Christ declared this same truth back in Matthew, verse 25. Matthew 25 says this, listen. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So here Christ begins praising the Father in front of everyone He's been preaching to. And He says, God, these people that don't believe, it's because you've hardened their hearts. And these people, these innocent people that are believing, they believed only because of your grace. Christ affirms again that it is God the Father who reveals the doctrine of Christ. But in that same chapter, Matthew 11, verse 27, Christ declares this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Christ says, it's not of flesh, nor of blood, but it's of my will. It's of the Father's will. It's of my will. And to put the icing on the cake, it's of the Spirit's will. 1 Corinthians 12.3 No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If your profession of Jesus Christ this morning is genuine and is real, it's all by the grace of God 
that you have been able to say Jesus Christ is Lord. The other night I was praying with some brothers and one brother began praying like this, God, the only thing I added to my salvation was my sin. Oh, it turned my heart. The only thing, God, the only thing I added to my, the only thing I brought to my salvation was my sin. Because Titus 3, 5 through 7 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is all of God. Like the Apostle Paul, every one of us must be saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I stand before you this morning and I pronounce that to you. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the most ungodly. I am the most wicked. But the reality is that I can say that and I can believe it and it can be true. But you can say it too. Each one of you can say, I am the chief of sinners. I am the most wicked. I know I did not come to Christ. I know where I was. I know how I was living. And I know that it was by the sovereign grace of God that He has brought me, He has unfolded my eyes to see the light. He has allowed me to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That is God's grace to us. That was God's grace to Peter. But it didn't end there. God's grace... Christ's grace to Peter didn't just end with the unfolding of who Jesus Christ is. Look at verse 18. Not only, Peter, are you right, but I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This verse has many religions and groups, cults, sects, basing its power and position off criminal interpretations of this text. Let me give you an example. The Catholic Church holds this text, this very verse, as being the sole authority for the Pope. This text is the reason you have a Pope, or not us, but the world has a Pope. Listen to what Catholic authorities write on this text. The Pope is crowned with a triple crown. He is king of heaven and earth and of hell. He wields two swords, the spiritual and the physical. Our Lord conferred on St. Peter the first place of honor and jurisdiction in the government of his whole church. And that same spiritual authority has always resided in the popes and bishops of Rome as being the successors of St. Peter. Consequently, to be true followers of Christ, all Christians, both among the clergy and laity, must be in communion with the Pope of Rome where Peter rules in the person of his successor. I hope you grasp what that means. It means because you do not believe that the Pope is the authority of Christ on earth, you are outside of God's saving grace. Well, I'm not even going to waste time on obliterating such comments. We understand that that's hardly what this text is saying. But at the same time, though this text is hardly saying that Peter is a pope or any pope or the first pope, I do believe that Christ is telling Peter that he is the rock on which he's going to build the church. The church is the beginning 
So the church is built on the beginning of the ministry of Peter, who was the first of the apostles. And let me say this, there's no need to be concerned with such an interpretation. That Peter is you know, one of the first stones. Ephesians 2.20 says this, that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, Hands down, we understand that Peter is not what all of ecclesiology and all of the doctrine of the church is built off of. But Peter, in a sense, is the man which the church was begun through. Peter was the first preacher, the first herald of the gospel. You read Acts chapters 1 through 10, and you see Peter at the forefront preaching the gospel all the time. It was Peter who first preached the gospel, in which 3,000 people were added to the church on that day. So in that sense, I take Peter to be the rock on which Christ is putting him, saying, Peter, I am giving you an infinitely great responsibility. Don't screw it up. Upon you, upon your ministry, and also upon the rest of the disciples' ministry, I'm going to establish my church. 1 Peter 2, 4-5 says, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also are living stones. And you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So, Christ is the cornerstone. Christ says the apostles are living stones. And then he says you and I are living stones. In other words, the church is a building after all. The church is a building. It's a building made of flesh and blood. It's a building made of saints who are being made perfect in the righteousness of Christ. And if this will help clear up anything I've confused you with, just so you understand, I'm not saying that Peter is the authority or he is the mere doctrine of which the church is built on. Christ says to Peter, I will build my church. I will build my church. Not Peter's church, not James or John, not the Apostle Paul's, but my church. And this is the first mention of the, of the word church in the gospel, in the Bible. This is the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. And this is one of three mentions of it in the gospels. The second is other two times from Matthew 18, 17. The first mention of the term church in the New Testament. And we must understand that whatever this word means, or whatever Christ means by this, we do know that this is the beginning of the progressive revelation of the church. In other words, this is the beginning of the doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And as the beginning, Christ was hardly unfolding the full doctrine of what the church was and what was going to take place within the church and what the church was going to accomplish for the glory of Christ. In other words, what I'm saying is, when, when, when Peter heard these words and the disciples heard these words, there had to come much explanation of what the church was after this. And we can assume, even after Christ was resurrected and spent 40 days on earth spending hours with his disciples, he was preparing them for what was going to happen at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so when the disciples began to preach the gospel and men and women get saved, they weren't clueless as to what was happening. They were prepared as the gates of the church were opened. It's fitting that the first use of the word church would refer here also not to mere congregations, not to local churches, but to the universal body of Christ. Because Christ says, I will build my church, my church. 
That is all, I believe, every man and woman who will ever be a part of the body of Christ, who will ever be infused into the church. That's what I'm going to build. And then he says, the gates of hell will not overcome it. And we're going to have to come back to that in a little bit. Verse 19, I will give to you, Peter, I will give to you, singular, you, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I'll just tell you right now, complicated text. Uh, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to give you a concise explanation. All right. Simply this, the keys of the kingdom, I believe, refers to the truth which opens the ways for sinners to enter in. No way. The keys of the kingdom is the gospel message. The keys of the kingdom is the message of Christ. And that is what opens the gates of the kingdom of heaven. That is what allows men and women to enter into heaven. By what way? By the means of the way and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ. That is why Peter said in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other key that unlocks the gates of heaven but Jesus Christ. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Which I take to mean that God's sovereign hand is the power that opens and closes the kingdom to men and women. As Peter preaches the gospel and people get saved, it is because it was done by God in heaven. And when the gospel is preached and men and women reject it, it is because it was done by God in heaven. There's much more to that text, and I will tell you right now that those verses which we've just gone through, there's you know, 20 sermons there. But I've gone through all that this morning to bring us to this point. Because for the rest of our time, I want to focus on, I think you saw the title perhaps, the Church of Jesus Christ versus the Gates of Hell. The Church of Jesus Christ versus the Gates of Hell. Because Christ says to Peter, the gates of hell will not, no, they cannot overcome my church. And so I want to give you this morning six reasons why the gates of hell cannot overcome the church of Christ. Number one, the gates of hell cannot overcome the church because the gates of hell cannot overcome Christ. If hell overcame the church, it would mean that Satan had triumphed over the Lord Jesus Christ. If this happened, the world would then see that Christ was fraudulent, that He was not all-powerful and cannot be the Savior of all men, because He cannot even save Himself. Satan would then be the ruler of the world, and all men would bow down before Him in infinite worship. Christ would lay in the corner in chains, overcome by the devil. The Lamb would become the bondservant of Satan, helpless to do anything for himself or for anyone. Then the church herself would then become the slave of Satan. It would be one thing to wake up in Hades knowing that you had rejected Christ's free gift of salvation and you woke up deserving what you deserved. It would be quite another thing to wake up in Hades next to the Savior who promised you that He had saved your soul. But it would be easier. It would be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for the church to be overcome by the gates of hell. The church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, 22-23. Colossians 1, 24. His arms will not be lost. His feet will not be crushed. 
And who are His arms and who are His feet? It's us. We are the body of Christ. The body of Christ cannot be crushed because Christ cannot be crushed. Now don't misunderstand me here. The church will fill the heat of hell. The church will fill the heat of hell. The mere statement that the gates of hell will not overcome implies that the church will be brutally attacked by an onslaught from the evil one. Luke 22.31 tells us that Peter was going to be sifted by Satan. Christ says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you and you will be restored again. Christ in His complete sovereignty yielded for a time and allowed Satan to tempt and to torment Peter. Christ promised Paul in Acts 9 that he would suffer. Paul, on behalf of Christ, has promised you and I this morning the very same things. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe upon Him, but also to what? To suffer for His name's sake. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The gates of hell will not overcome the church, but the gates of hell will come at the church. Christ said in John 16, 33, In the world you have tribulation. Yet all of these promises of suffering are encircled and enshrouded by Christ's prophetic words that the church cannot over, be overcome by the gates of hell. Satan cannot nor will never even for a split second gain the upper hand against the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.15 When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since we are children, and we share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that, listen to this, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3.8 the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so Christ says, it is finished. It is to tell us die. Our Lord has crushed the serpent's head. He has broken the serpent's back. And even though you face trials of various kinds, you rejoice. Because the gates of hell cannot overcome the church. And the gates of hell cannot overcome you. Secondly, the gates of hell cannot overcome the church because the church was predestined before the foundation of the world. In other words, election means that the church cannot be destroyed. If the church is safe in Christ, then so are her saints. If saints are not safe in Christ, then the church can be overcome by the evil one. But clearly Christ says the gates of hell will not overcome. Eternal security for the believer, is wrapped up in the safety of the church. Ephesians 1, 13-14 You are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Romans 8, 29-30 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And those whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. John 10, 27-28, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give to them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them from My hand. Predestination, election, effectual calling, all these promise that the gates of hell will not overcome the church. Thirdly, the gates of hell cannot overcome the church because the church belongs to Christ. Christ says, it is my church. In the Greek, this my is emphatic because it's already placed in the verb. He said, this is my church. Here is the selfishness of Christ that thrills our hearts. He shares all things with us. He gave His life for us. Thus we are His. He says that we are His church, my sheep, my people, my servants, my redeemed, my called, my chosen ones in whom my soul delights. It is because the church belongs to Christ that it will not and cannot ever belong to anyone else. Therefore, it cannot be overcome by the gates of hell. Fourthly, the gates of hell cannot overcome the church because the fires of judgment cannot consume the church. The gates of hell cannot overcome the church because the fires of judgment, the fires of hell, the fires of God's judgment cannot consume the church. I just confused you, so let me unconfuse you. If the church is prepared to pass through the refining fire of God and to be purged from all dross, if she is prepared to withstand the fires of the Holy One, then she must certainly be able to withstand the gates of hell. So Christian, you and I have a judgment to go through. You and I have a judgment that we must pass through. The Bema Seat judgment, the judgment of 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment of 1 Corinthians 3, the refiner's fire of 1 Peter 1, verse 7. The judgment that awaits us is not for the purpose of destruction, but for the purpose of purity. Though the fires of hell may consume the world, they cannot consume the church because the church is made of that which is imperishable. The church is forged by the flames of heaven so that she cannot be consumed by the flames of hell. Afflictions which proceed from Satan may be unpleasant for the church, but ultimately they only aid the church. The evil fires of Nero, which lit Christians on fire, did not burn the church out, but only made her stronger. The reformers were burnt at the stake. They were drowned. They were tortured by the Catholics. But Catholicism could not burn out the Word of God. Persecution only served to purify and emblazon the church of Christ to burn all the more brightly for the glory of God. Which is why Luther could sing, Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. Our Lord makes a mockery of the devil when the devil attempts to burn the church of Christ. Satan believes that he is damaging the church, all the while he is oblivious that God is using him as a pawn to accomplish his will. Some may say, Marcus, preach quietly unless the devil finds out this secret. Right? You know, Satan may be hearing this sermon, but I'll tell you what, he does not believe it. He will continue to use the flamethrowers of hell to burn this house down. But He only aids in building you up. 
Because God causes all things to work together for our good. Our reaction to the afflictions of the devil is, though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. To bring about this present result, to preserve many saints alive. Consider it all the joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith purifies your faith. And it brings about a perseverance. The testing of your faith means the church is one trial closer to being done with her tests. And then she will be handed over to her groom in all her spotlessness and blamelessness. Then Christ will look at the bride, at His church, which He has prepared for Himself. He will praise her for her beauty and her holiness, which He has adorned upon her for His name's sake. Fifthly, The gates of hell cannot overcome the church because Christ is the one that is building the church. It is not only because it is Christ's church that it cannot be overcome, but also because Christ Himself is the builder of His church. 9-11 showed you and I, showed America, that no one is safe. It showed us that no building, that no place can defend itself. There's no building strong enough to defend itself against jet airliners. No place on earth can protect the world from the wiles of the devil. But the church is so masterfully engineered by Christ that it can withstand the gates of hell. Our Lord is building His church with His own strong hands. Hands that bore the nails. Head that bore the thorns back that bore the whips, a body that bore our sin. Our Lord masterminded His own death and resurrection. And He has mastered yours and my salvation. He has masterminded the building of His church. Terrorists will always be masterminds of destruction because Satan is the mastermind of demolition. But He cannot nor will ever come up with a plan that will be able to successfully blew up the church of Christ. Proverbs 16.4 16, says this about evil people. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Satan was created by Christ and ultimately carries out the will of Christ. Satan is the pawn of Christ. Our Lord patronizes Satan just as He did to him in the book of Job. Satan appears before our Lord with the rest of the angels in heaven, having come from walking upon the earth. And our Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my church? For there is no one like her on the earth, a blameless and upright body, fearing God and turning away from evil, and she still holds fast her integrity. I give you free reign, Satan. Do whatever you can. Try whatever you might. See if you can tear down her walls. See if you can steal her saints. You will fail. God uses Satan as a pawn to show the world, to show the angels of heaven and the demons of hell that there is no power that can tear down the work of Christ's own hands. Number six. The gates of hell cannot overcome the church because hell cannot overcome the believer. 
Death was Satan's most powerful tool to destroy man. If you died apart from Christ, you were lost forever. But now death is nothing to you. Death is nothing to me. It cannot hold you. It cannot hold me down. It cannot even singe the hairs on your head. Why? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. It is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a believer to be swallowed up by hell. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57 Death, where is your sting? There is no sting. It has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Hebrews 2.14 He himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The devil's greatest tool that he has ever had and will ever possess has been rendered powerless against the church of Christ. Should you die today as a believer and happen to wake up in hell, which you won't, but if you did, it would be to you as the fiery furnace was to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not a hair on your head would be singed. The fires of hell will one day torment Satan forever, but they cannot, they will be nothing to you but a cool breeze. Because death has no power over you. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 11.25 Death has no power over you. The gates of hell cannot, will not, they will never overcome the church. I don't know what that does for you this morning. I'm not sure what that does. I want to say this. Even though the gates of hell will not overcome the church, there are times when it has seemed dangerously close to doing so. Church history shows us that. There have been times in the history of the church where the walls and the roof of the church have been so engulfed by the flames of hell, one has wondered how she would ever be able to survive. And so I want to plead with you this morning in light of Christ's promise for His church. In light of Christ's promise that the church cannot be overcome, but also in light of Christ's promise that you will face trials, that this church itself will be tested to its core. I beg of you first, to ask yourself the question, is your confession of Jesus Christ genuine? Ask yourself now, is my confession of Jesus Christ genuine? In this church country, many say, you are the Christ, but it means nothing. Peter's confession was one of submission. Peter's pronouncement was one of devotion. But some men say, you are the Christ, and it means nothing other than a historical fact. Well, let me tell you something. Christ is not interested in you telling Him who He is, because He already knows it. Christ is interested in you knowing who He is and living out who He is. So I ask you again, is your confession of Jesus Christ genuine? But you ask, how do I know if my confession is genuine? Well, I'll tell you. Peter pronounced his confession and then he lived it out. His words were backed up by his life. 
If you are here this morning and you have said, you are the Christ, but you have not lived a life that proved Christ is your Lord, then you must conclude that your profession is not genuine. And if your profession is not genuine, then you must know that the gates of hell will overcome you. Indeed, they already have. In fact, all that is waiting is for you to die so that the gates of hell can swallow you and consume you forever. If your profession is not genuine, then your faith is not genuine. And salvation will not come. The tragedy of 9-11 was not that people died. The tragedy of 9-11 is that many were not ready for death. People, we know this, that we're all going to die. Every person in this room is going to die. If you are here this morning looking for something to save you from earthly death, you are in the wrong place. If you are in church this morning because you don't want your earthly life to expire, you are in the wrong place. But if you are here because you know that the Son of God will raise you up on the last day and resurrect you from the dead and give life to your mortal bodies, then you're in the right place. If you will profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you will cry out to God that, that He would open your eyes of your hearts so that you don't just mutter some Christian lingo, but actually repent and submit your life to the Son of God, then everlasting life and safety will come upon you. There is no safer place to be than in the body of Christ. You may be in a sinking ship, in a crashing plane, in a burning building, in enemy crossfire. You may be in a burning house. You may be dying in a hospital. You may be with someone else who is dying in a hospital. But if you are in Christ, death cannot harm you. On the other hand, there is no more dangerous place to be than outside of the church of Jesus Christ. I do not mean physically. I'm not saying that you are safe this morning from the terrorists. I'm not saying you are safe this morning from some, from some traumatic earthquake. I'm saying if you are spiritually born again, if you are in Christ, then you are safe. But if you are not, you are woed. You can be in a bomb shelter. You can be under layers of steel and concrete and rebar. But if you are not in the church of Christ, the gates of hell will swallow you whole. The tragedy of thinking that safety lies in security and armory and insurance and bullets and money and food and clothing, these will perish. The Christian can be in the lion's den and not be bitten. The Christian can be bitten on the hand by the viper, but he will not perish. And so I ask you this morning, what is your fortress? What is your fortress? What are you seeking safety in? What is your refuge? I pray that it is in Christ and in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground. Secondly, I beg of you. I beg of you, church, to stamp out the internal fires. Stamp out the internal fires. See, the church is not a utopia. The church is not heaven on earth. 
The church is filled with imperfect men and women who sin and stumble and even hurt one another quite often. It is filled with people who, yes, are saved by the grace of God, but still carry the baggage of their former lives. So it is within the confines of the church that sin still takes place. But something radical happens within the walls of the church that cannot happen outside the church. And that is genuine forgiveness. That is genuine forbearance. That is genuine Christ-like heartfelt patience shown amongst sinners. The refusal to forgive and to love a Christian who has offended you is like starting a fire on your own living room carpet. Forget the gates of hell. We have people in the church who are lighting fires in their own living room. Cornerstone, you are so often aware of the false doctrines and theological aberrations that go on in other churches. All the while, you are unaware that backbiting and slander and bitterness and refusal to love, refusal to forgive those within its own doors, lights our own church pews on fire. You throw buckets of water out the windows, seeking to douse the flames of hell, while inside, saints are running around with their clothes lit aflame. We must be a church that forgives. We must be men and women who bear with one another, who bear one another's burdens, who bear one another's weaknesses, who bear each other's flaws. Be concerned with putting out our internal fires. Do not be a spiritual arsonist. Be a church who thinks more highly of others than you think of yourself. When a brother or sister sins against you, then first forgive and then say, Oh, I must do all I can to put out this fire. When a brother or sister sins against you, say, It's only by the grace of God that I have not done worse to them. Don't douse him in lighter fuel. Don't throw a match on her. Don't say, You were a sinner. How could you do such a thing? The church will hear about this. No, shower them with love and compassion. If you have been wronged, Humbly go to them, not because they have offended you, but because they have offended Christ. Seek restitution and forgiveness, not because it has damaged you, but because it has damaged the name of Christ. Show them your concern. Help them by first forgiving any wrongs done to you, and then by defending their reputation and seeking to be a peacemaker. Because blessed are the peacemakers. They shall inherit the earth. Thirdly, I think this, for me, this is maybe the most important point. Thirdly, in regards to the doctrine of the church, only follow your leaders for the sake of being led to Christ. Okay? Only follow your leaders for the sake of being led to Christ. I beg you to protect your leaders. Make sure your confession is built upon Christ and not upon any man, whether a leader in the church or any other servant here. We do not follow a man. We are not part of a man, at least not any earthly man. We are part of the God-man Jesus Christ. It is His body that we are part of. Not the body of James Shin, not the body of Jason Park, not the body of, of Joshua Lee, not the, party, not the body of any uh, flock leader. We are solely a part of the body of Jesus Christ. If we put our hope in man and not in Christ, we will be sorely disappointed. 
We will perhaps be so disappointed, perhaps devastated. We will leave the church. We will turn our back. We will fail to forgive. We will walk out. If our leaders stumble, and yet we are mindful that, yes, they are leaders, but that they are also men like all other men, then, we will rem- then you will remember that the church is built on Christ. Even the best of men can be misled. Peter, who just pronounced the reality of who Jesus Christ is, immediately becomes blinded by Satan in verse 22. So that our Lord yells at Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And so here is the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. The person whom God revealed incredible truths to quickly becomes the extension of the devil. My point is that even the best of men will fail and falter at times. If you have not seen James stumble, then keep waiting. If I have not sinned against you, either you need to be a little more patient or you need to put on some glasses. right? Because I am a sinner. I will offend you. I might hurt you. But it is the church and not any man or men that is the pillar and support of the truth. So let me make this very clear so that no one misunderstands what I am saying or why I am saying it. If any leader at this church becomes the leader instead of a leader that leads you to the leader, then you are mistaken. If you treat James or Bob or Jason or any other leader as the leader, you are committing idolatry. Now I know you don't worship them. I know that's you know, going a little too far. But you can have a too high view of your leaders. You can put man on a pedestal. And let me explain why this point will help protect your leaders. If you view your leader or leader, if it is too high and your leader stumbles and sins, which they will do, whether in little ways or in great, and suddenly your lofty view of them comes tumbling down, then you will stop trusting them and forgiving them and loving them. And that will be devastating to them and to you and to this church. It is unfair to hold such a high view of any man. No leader should be thought of so highly. Just as you and I are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, at the same time we must not think too highly of our leaders than we ought. Now understand again, I am not undoing God's plan to have godly men lead and shepherd the church. I am not undoing God's plan in any way of having a man stand in this pulpit saying, Thus saith the Lord. God shepherds His church through its leaders. God, Christ, shepherds His church through, that is, by means of, godly men who lead the church, not perfect men. You must submit them, you must respect them, you must follow them, but you must also see that we are men and that we will fail, that we will stumble, that we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need your prayers as we shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but under the will of God. That is why we must make sure our view of the leaders of this church is right. One that balances respect with reality. Respect the men that lead the church with the balanced reality that the leaders of the church are men. Which leads me to conclude with this. Truth belongs to Christ 
and the church, not just the pastors or the leaders. If truth, passionate, powerful, prevailing truth, becomes nothing more than one man's passion, this church will die. If Pastor James is the sole pillar in support of the truth at CBC, or even if it be James or Bob or myself, or or the leaders together, if it is only them, this church will sink. It must be the church. It must be Cornerstone Bible Church. It must be all of you. It must be you who holds up the torch of truth. You must hold up the flame floor that will hurl molten veracity towards sin-enslaved masses. It is each of you, not merely me or any other preacher, that stands up here on Sundays. All in here must know the Bible inside and out. Doctrine and duty must fill each and every vessel in this room. Until the vessels in this room are filled, they cannot overflow. And until you overflow, the truth will not spill over into the world. Week after week, a man stands here preaching the Word of God. Week after week, he pours his own vessel out in order that yours might be filled up. But until you accept it, until you allow the Word of God to fill you up, you will not be able to pour out into others. Doctrine must come before duty, but duty must come after doctrine. The preacher cannot pour and pour and pour. There must come a time when you are filled up and begin to overflow with truth and duty, with devotion to the church of Christ. And that is why I say it is the church and not a single man who is the pillar and the support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 The church cannot merely survive. She must flourish through doctrine and duty. The church is fed on the divine bread of life, the Word of God, and from this bread she receives the strength to move mountains and to withstand the gates of hell. Do you know that we are still in the ice ages? The Arctic Circle may be getting warmer, but the polar ice caps of sin have not melted in this world. The world is trapped under layers and layers of icy sin. Millions lay trapped and frozen in its grip. Hearts of sin frozen, icebergs of iniquity floating in the paths of life, seeking millions to their doom. The world lays frozen and frost-covered, blinded by a blizzard of wickedness. Everywhere you look there is sin and lust and greed and jealousy. It is only when the church, the pillar and support of the truth, holds up her flaming torch, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that men and women will be saved from their frozen prisons. The church of Jesus Christ delivers the fire that melts the hearts of sin. My final statement, it is not the church that needs to be worried about the flames of hell. It should be hell that is worried about the flames of the church. It is not the church that needs to be worried about the flames of hell. It should be hell that is worried about the flames of the church. The blazing glory of of Christ is hotter than the flames of hell. It is the infinite glory of Christ that will cause the flames of hell themselves to melt. It is the gates of hell that cannot prevail over the church because Satan cannot triumph over our Christ. Father, this morning, we again commit ourselves to You. Again, we commit ourselves as a local church to the trustworthy promises of Scripture. But that as a church, we cannot merely be defensive, but that we must be offensive. We must not merely be concerned with doctrine, 
about becoming a bastion, about becoming some sort of spiritual library that holds the dust-covered books of truth. But we must continue to be a living and breathing extension of you, the head, and we the body. So Lord, we praise you this morning that by your grace, the gates of hell will not overcome the church and the gates of hell will not overcome this church. Into your hands this morning we commit our spirit, trusting and praying that, Lord, you will be exalted and magnified in our midst. For your glory and your name we pray. Amen.